This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is now available, so go get them wherever books are sold. Uh, we'll be joined. I'm calling in from London. We're broadcasting live from London. I'm here in a conference room with uh, two of my colleagues out of London, Nitesh Shah, who's head of commodity and macroeconomic research here at Wisdom Tree uh, EU, and Anika Gupta, who's a director of macroeconomic research here. We have a very interesting conversation about the global market, what's happening here in Europe. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor of Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. Uh, so we're going to get into Europe with the team here. But Professor, uh, we got some more econ data. We've got a big week coming up next week. How are you looking forward to the Fed and inflation? Uh, what's your thoughts? Yes, and hello, Jeremy, across the pond there. Um, I'm looking east, but uh, not, not, can't, see you, can't see you in London. Um, uh, I, I, there, there's some, you know, very, yeah, obviously the two big data points next week, first of all, the CPI uh, and, and, of course, the Fed minutes. Before I go to those, I, I would like to review this week, this morning, we had a PPI number that a little bit ruffled the markets. Um, it was a little higher than expectations. There were some unusual features about what was higher interest rate margins uh, that banks have rather than uh, the, the hard goods and services. I don't regard it as really uh, a worrisome uh, development. In, in fact, I thought that we really had two um, uh, important uh, non-inflationary developments in the past week. One was a unit labor costs, which um, uh, fell uh, quite a bit um, uh, 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 more than expected because of the rise in productivity. And um, this is my major theme about what I think is going to happen next year. I think the terrible productivity of 2022 is going to be uh, transformed into the remarkable productivity of 2023. We're going to get a lot of it back. And what that means is unit labor costs are going to decline. Um, we're not going to have a strong job market, but we might have stronger GDP and we might have stronger margins and we may not have a recession. Now, of course, that does depend on the Fed recognizing the disinflationary forces that are everywhere in the economy um, uh, that we've spoken of uh, so so much. Um, and I'll talk about the Fed's uh, projections in, in just a moment. But not only do we have a good uh, productivity data, uh, the University of Michigan, which just came out um, a little bit after the PPI report, showed that the one-year uh, inflation expectations dropped quite considerably uh, from 4.9 to 4.6%. It was not expected to drop at all. Uh, and that's the lowest in more than one year, which uh, shows you that, you know, at least on the ground, and these are not the most sophisticated people when they, uh, you know, these are regular consumers, not economists. They are seeing that the rate of price increases is, in fact, going down. Now, the 5 to 10 years stayed at 3% uh, as expected, but I thought it was noteworthy that we got, uh, you know, a quite a quite a decline in that uh, one year. Uh, let me talk about next um, week. I do expect a 50. I don't think there's anything that will shake it. If there's a very bad inflation report, uh, there may be one or two dissents in favor of 75, maybe by Bullard and others. But I, I think that um, uh, it would shock the market at present time. Um, uh, if seven, uh, if, if 75, it's 50. Of course, what 
everybody will be looking at is the dot plot. And I must caution all our listeners uh, how tenuous the projections of the FOMC are. We've spoken of so many times that last year they thought there would be virtually no increases this year. And what have we seen? Um, you know, 15 increases uh, of 25 basis points. Uh, they really don't know. It, they're going to follow the data. The data is going to dictate it. Um, so I expect it actually to be pretty hawkish, the dot plot, which means I expect most of the participants to expect another 25, 50 basis points um, uh, in several meetings in the first half of next year. My feeling is is that when we get to the to next year and uh, February 1st will be the first meeting, that actually the most likely would be a pause uh, and saying we see enough disinflation and we're going to wait uh, and that pause will continue until late spring where we might actually then get talks of a decline um, uh, in um, rates, not of any increase uh, in rates. So, um, again, um, the market will probably react to the uh, hawkish tone of the dots uh, being negative again. Oh, my goodness, the Fed funds rate is going to go up to five or more. Um, but, I, uh, you know, I think what we saw with that dramatic decline, the 10-year and, the, you know, the 10-year bond, smart bond, is detecting a lot of disinflationary forces in the economy. And disinflationary forces might surprise not just being uh, a recession. That's the way many interpreted the decline of the 10-year, which was quite precipitous um, uh, in the middle of this week. But uh, actually, um, we might see a productivity that GDP will go up, but uh, prices will remain on a uh, level or even downward uh, uh, projection. Professor, we love your aggression on trying to go away from what the markets say, because, you know, the market is definitely not on your page yet. Um, you know, how much data do you think comes out between now and the Fed realizing it? What, what are the data points that you think they'll make that will wake them up to the what you've seen in the real world? Well, I think we're going to see a, a, a big weakening of that labor market, but it's it's not going to be quite the recession. You know, it's going to be that firms are going to get rid of excess labor. Uh, and, and, and my feeling is, is that once people realize that, hey, I, you know, I can't be fired, I think productivity is going to jump. They're going to say, I'm going to keep my job. I'm going to have to work. Um, this increases, this lowers costs, increases of that. So I think you're going to see weak labor markets. Uh, we'll, we'll see what, you know, um, obviously uh, the first week of January, we'll get December. Uh, 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 payroll, I think we're going to get negative, some negative payrolls in the first half. And that is what I think is going to uh, turn the heads of uh, the FOMC. Again, GDP will do much better than normal with a negative uh, payroll, uh, which will keep up margins. Um, uh, so profits, I think, will be better than expected. Now, when I say expected, you know, people are t- talking me S and P down to two hundred. Um, we'll we'll see. I think the margins will improve even uh, because they're getting rid of excess labor. And if they get rid of excess labor, their main uh, argument for the continuing increase, which is the labor market is too tight, disappears. So it's got to be on the labor market. But I think what might surprise us is a weak labor market, but not a weak uh, real GDP market and not a weak profit uh, picture uh, as a result. Remember, this year we saw an absolute record decline of productivity in the first two quarters, never witnessed before, and productivity is only slightly coming back. I think the tide is going to turn the other year surprise on the higher productivity uh, and the weaker labor market. Professor, we have one question from Natesh here who wants to jump in real quick. Hi, Professor Siegel. Um, So if you think the the Fed is likely to have reason to pivot sooner, uh, what do you think about central banks elsewhere? Would they pivot sooner 
And what kind of implication would that have for the dollar? Yeah, and, and it's exactly what you said. It, I mean, I think the dollar senses it, the fact that dollar has really come off its high. The, uh, obviously, a, a pivot sooner than expected would be a weaker dollar. And, and let's face it, a lot of central banks, I mean, they moved up. They had inflationary pressures. Now, again, in Europe, most of it was much more supply-induced than in the U.S., where it was demand-induced inflation, um, you know, with, the, uh, with so much of the energy being imported um, so they, 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 they were facing that situation. But basically, a lot of them uh, raised their rates just in response, not just to the inflation, but the fact is that, uh, you know, they, they didn't want the, uh, you know, the, I mean, the dollar was just absolutely soaring and their import costs were definitely soaring, adding to the inflation. So I think that, yes, I think it'll be a global market situation. Now, you guys are in Europe. Um, uh, some of the early words I'm getting is things are not as going to be as absolutely terrible as we all feared a month ago, um, uh, uh, particularly on the continent. Um, and uh, we'll see how they get through the winter. We might be surprised uh, how resilient um, the Europeans are. Well, Professor, thanks for that. Have a great weekend. Look forward to seeing the data and the Fed's uh, commentary next week. Thanks for some comments to kick us off. Yeah, we'll talk to you uh, next week. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all right, I'm going to turn the conversation to live from here in London. Um, we're, we're here close to Soho area. Uh, we've got Nitesh Shah, again, who's a uh, head of macro and economic research, Anika Gupta, who works with him very closely on all of our views. Um, Anika, I'm going to turn to you to start because we just, Nitesh asked a great question on what's happening with the ECB and the Fed. Professor, very dovish compared to what's happening in the markets. Um, what do you see on the ground here in Europe? How much do you agree, disagree with the professor? What, what's happening here? Well, uh, it's been a very difficult year, Jeremy, for Europe, to say the least. Um, you know, we've we've uh, been hit by an external shock with uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. You know, Putin's launched a war. It's, it's created one of the you know toughest situations since 1945. And I think um, the way Europe has navigated the situation has been quite well compared to you know the expectations we had coming into this war um but clearly as we move into q4 of 2022 and end this year um if i reflect on the on you know the first three quarters i think the first three quarters europe has been quite resilient in terms of growth and i think that was largely due to the uh, uh, you know, the resilience of the economy coming out of the Omicron variant. So we've had, you know, a, a consumer uh, and a business balance sheets remaining quite strong. We've had consumer spending being quite resilient. Uh, you know, we've had that fiscal stimulus that was uh, provided from the uh, relief package supporting uh, growth across uh, several economies. And I think that has benefited Europe in the first three quarters, which is why we've seen fairly resilient equity performance alongside, uh, you know, some strong gains, especially over the last three, uh, last six weeks in Europe. But I think now as we move into the in, into the fourth quarter, that's when the real test begins. Um, I think Europe has what Europe has been able to do is shore up some sufficient energy reserves in order to. Uh, you know, help Europe navigate this tough winter. But I think a lot depends on, you know, how the winter shapes up. Um, so far, what we've seen is, uh, you know, we've seen rationing take place on a broader scale. Uh, we've seen rationing come down by 15%. Um, and I think that's, that's also helped with, um, you know, reducing that excess demand for energy. At the same time, we've also seen energy prices come off. So that's given a bit of relief on the inflation story. So, uh, you know, looking ahead, I think uh, it is going to be a tough winter. But if you if you for a moment just think of where we were prior to the war taking place, Europe was actually in a good place. Uh, the economy was doing quite well. And I think that has been translated in the first three quarters of 2022. Um, Q4 is when reality is actually going to hit and we actually have to uh, deal with this situation and it's going to be quite difficult because it's very much linked to uh, you know the political story of how uh, we you know we see oil price the trajectory for oil prices going forward um, but owing to that view we do believe that 
uh, Europe should, uh, you know, remain in a recession for Q4 and Q1 of 2023. Uh, but by the summer, that is when we'll start to see a rebound uh, take place in the eurozone economy. And again, that that largely ties in with the inflation narrative, where we will see inflation remaining high until Q1 of 2023, and then that's when you know we we will be uh, reducing rates from from that point on. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about valuation and how all this gets reflected for a moment. Uh, you know, you're, you're starting to see some positive stories. Um, actually, I was I, had, I did a CNBC segment this week. People talking about the case for Europe, uh, followed up on a Wall Street Journal article talking about, hey, the last six months the euro stocks was outperforming the S and P five hundred. Uh, you started, you had a lot of outflows, at least in the U.S. investor world, a lot of outflows from European ETFs. That turned to inflows over the last 30 days. Uh, so that tide, a little bit of the tide has turned on that segment. I, I talked about people get international high dividend baskets. You can get a basket around eight times earnings for 500 different stocks. Um, so we're pricing in earnings declines next year when the S&P still is pricing in earnings growth for the next year, even though you know everybody's saying that earnings is going to come down and there's a lot of risk to S&P earnings. Internationally, they're a little bit more pessimistic. They think there's going to be a decline. But still, eight times earnings, which is over 50% discount to the S&P 500, um, which still has elevated earnings risk, you say. Uh, what is, is this, you know, resonating with European investors? Are you, are you seeing people, how are you thinking people looking at, at equities here? Yeah, so there's, that's really interesting because we're seeing a bit of a bifurcation. So if you look at the cyclical sectors, so, um, uh, you know, energy, materials, uh, they uh, they are definitely pricing in significant EPS contraction for 2023, um, and that will be re- reflected in performance. So what you've seen so far is actually uh, the best performance you could have got. In fact, we even surpassed uh, U.S. equities for the last six week uh, you know duration. Uh, but now what we're seeing is we're seeing that largely becoming more embedded into prices because we will start to see that contraction. Uh, you know, it's important to keep in mind for 2022, the first three quarters, we've had fairly resilient earnings growth in Europe. In fact, um, if you look at the margin compression, it hasn't been as wide as we've seen in the U.S., uh, given the fact that wages haven't been such a big pressure in the Eurozone economy. Um, that is likely to change. Uh, we are now likely to see a lot more wage pressure because of a shortage of labor supply. Also, um, you know, you, you're looking at... Uh, you know, uh, employees asking for much higher rises in wages just to deal with the cost of living pressures, um, you know, be it higher food prices, be it higher energy prices. So the after effect of that will definitely have a compression in margins. So I think if anyone is looking to take exposure to European equities at this point, it needs to be on the more defensive sectors, um, uh, you know, looking at uh, healthcare, utilities, industrials. Those are the sectors that have more of a flat uh, to rising EPS uh, growth for 2023. Well, let me reintroduce our guest. We're talking Gupta, Nitesh Shah, and my team here in Europe. Nitesh, let's bring you to this conversation. What it's all about geopolitics now and this war. What's how is that impacting some of the, the markets you look after in the commodity markets? What's your sense of what's happening? Is there going to be potential for a resolution going into the new year? Yeah, so the geopolitical situation has introduced all the shocks uh, into the markets, and that goes beyond uh, commodities, which are the area that I, I mainly look at. But, um, you know, the geopolitical shocks have caused an increase in energy prices, which are having repercussions across the board in terms of increasing input prices. Uh, it's had an increase in food prices. Um, and, you know, that's stemming from the Ukraine-Russia war. But geopolitical issues go beyond that. Um, Right now, we've got um, issues with uh, China um, in in that it's... uh, the, 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 the country is uh, having aggression you know, with, uh, uh, with, with Taiwan and, 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 and it may 
potentially seek to take more control of the country, but it may also, while looking at the Russia-Ukraine situation, as it evolves, step back from that. So the geopolitical question is very wide and it can change very rapidly. Um, and that's having repercussions across all the uh, major asset classes. But commodities are probably one of the places where um, the prices are expressed at, at the most extreme. So in energy prices, for example, we've seen close to a 50% rally in energy prices uh, during the course of this year. Food prices have seen substantial increases. Uh, lots of metals are produced in the Russia uh, and Ukraine region, including uh, nickel, aluminium, have seen some sharp rallies because their supply has become tightened. And moreover, their, their supply chains have become more complicated. Um, so geopolitical issues matter. Uh, but in the commodity world, there are also hedges, right, against this, because if you invest directly into commodities, those things that are taking a rise, uh, taking a large price increase as a result of the geopolitical issues can help hedge your portfolio elsewhere, for example, in equities, which have generally faltered as, as a result of higher input costs across the board. Uh, investing in the commodity space can, can, can hedge against that. And then you've got some defensive assets like gold, which people often look at with a bit of disappointment because it hasn't done anywhere nearly as, uh, hasn't performed as anywhere near as strong as inflation has, but um, its defensive qualities, um, once you factor in dollar appreciation and uh, treasuries, has actually done a lot better um, and therefore um, has acted as an effective uh, geopolitical hedge. Well, yeah, I want to come back to, you have some very interesting modeling work on gold, silver, some of these others. I want to come back to that, but let's yeah. just stick with the, the Russia dynamics and oil, which is oil seems to be a key center of a lot of inflationary themes. Um, talk about what's happened so far. We haven't got the U.S. with the SPR releases. Where are we on that? And as well as the, the curve for oil has shifted dramatically. We talk about the shape of the curve when people buy oil through products, whether in the U.S. or here in Europe generally buying futures uh, and there's a shape of the futures curve which impacts the returns. So let's, let's talk about that a bit, how it's today versus how it's been the last two decades. Absolutely. I, I think that's a very important point to address. So um, let's start off with that. And sorry, I do apologize to the audience if I get a little bit technical there, but you know, the investing in oil is difficult, right? It's not like investing in, in gold. Gold, you can buy a bar, you can buy a piece of jewelry, for example, and just keep it. And then as the price increases, you'll get the price appreciation. With oil, it's hard to buy oil and store it in your backyard. When it went negative, people were talking about getting these barrels and storing them in their bathroom and get negative pricing last in the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's not that easy to take delivery of oil barrels. Absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds nice in theory, but it's very toxic. I wouldn't recommend it. You could uh, you could die of you know um, uh, inhaling the fumes. So um, unless you've got specific uh, designated storage facilities for that oil or the petrochemical products, as an investor, you're best off uh, engaging in in uh, other instruments like futures. Uh, a future is an instrument where you lock into a price for delivery of the underlying at a certain point in time. Now, a lot of futures uh, like WTI crude, for example, are deliverable. So if you don't close out of your futures position on time, there is the obligation to take that barrel of oil. To be at delivery. Yeah, and you want to avoid that, right? If you don't have a storage facility. Um, some of the features like Brent, you know, they, they are cash delivered, so you need, there's an automatic mechanism to uh, close out. But generally, when you're investing in futures markets and you're rolling your future rather than taking delivery, um, what happens is, is your investment is really impacted by the shape of your futures curve. And what I mean by the features, the, face, the shape of the futures curve is if you were to pretend to draw a graph of prices of futures uh, with like months of delivery along your bottom axis and your price along the, you know, your vertical axis, very often, you'll find the price of delivery of a, of a future uh, to be higher in the 
in the future rather than in the for immediate delivery in, in uh, the spot. That's a, that's a condition of contango, right? Oil markets have traditionally been in that place of contango. The reason for structural contango is there's a price for storage and there's a price for shipping this oil. But when uh, you're a market of tightness, very often the price of for immediate delivery is higher than for future delivery. And that's what we've been in for the last year or so. The oil markets are super tight. People are willing to pay more for oil today than lock into a contract and take delivery in a couple of months' time. So that, that's the state of backwardation. We've been backwardation predominantly all this year. There was a period of weakness of that backwardation in, 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 recent, in recent months, but that backwardation is now regaining pace. And that poses a question of why is that the case? Well, you know, the world was for, worried for a while about recession risks as the Fed, ECB, other central banks were stepping hard on the brakes and trying to uh, slow down the economies to reduce down the inflation pressures, people were worried about inflation, uh, recession uh, uh, coming into play, and that would reduce the demand for oil. But now people are getting a little bit more optimistic. Um, the Fed pivot is more likely to happen, if you believe Siegel, um, that pivot is gonna happen a lot more quicker. And um, you know, oil, oil you know, projections for oil uh, demand are, are now picking up. But on top of that, we've got this complicated world of oil, where there's a group of countries, OPEC, and its partner countries, which control close to 45% of global oil supply. At a stroke of a pen, uh, you know, at a meeting, they can decide to cut on that oil supply. Um, they almost act like the central bank of the oil world. And they have been positioning for so-called weaker demand. And therefore, they can say, well, if demand's going to be weak, we'll cut supply. They're positioning uh, their rhetoric for uh, cutting supply increasingly. And therefore, that will keep the oil markets quite tight. Oh, there's a lot of questions. Can they increase the supply if they wanted to? All sorts of good questions. And when you when you think about balancing this recession risk versus this geopolitics risk and all this other stuff, how do you balance it all out? Do you have a view on where some of these markets like energy are going next year? Well, I think um, you know regarding the eurozone stance, it's been quite interesting because every time the eurozone has been hit with a crisis, be it you know we had the Greece crisis uh, in in 2010, we had uh, you know, the COVID crisis uh, in 2020, every time we've had this situation, the Eurozone has stood up to the challenge and tried to address the situation, either, in, you know, via the form of a relief package, or we had, you know, Mario Draghi's moment of we're going to do whatever it takes to, to help and rescue the economy. I think this time around, what has happened is Germany is now coming to the realization that we, you know, it needs to increase its defense stance. It seems more united with the EU. We've also seen NATO uh, strengthen its position. I don't think it's ever been this strong uh, in it since it, since a very long time. Um, and I think the Eurozone is now uh, realizing its mistake of being so dependent on uh, Russia for its energy sources. And they've been quick enough to, um, you know, manage to uh, restore that capacity, uh, uh, prepare in advance for this upcoming winter, uh, you know, include the, uh, the introduction of rationing of demand, uh, you know, by 15%. So they've been able to put all of these measures in place so that the upcoming recession is a lot shorter and a bit more resilient than most investors previously anticipated. From a geopolitical standpoint, I think the, the EU is starting to look more aligned with the US. And I think from, from the, for if, if you split the word between the East and the West, the East is beginning to get more united. Um, and you know you can see that in, in how they're shifting away slightly from the dollar. I think we're very much at a nascent stage there. But I think the, the, we're now starting to see EU becoming more dependent on suppliers other than Russia. We're looking at the EU looking more towards the US to uh, you know fulfill its energy needs. We've been talking a little bit while I was here about the different countries, how they've approached this energy crisis. Uh, and who's 
benefiting who's well who's getting hurt the most and and germany seems to be the front of the lines of who's most in trouble we have others who've gone towards nuclear who have a little bit less but even france who embraced nuclear has their own set of issues we're going to talk about the differences of countries how are you doing here in london uh versus these other countries maybe give a few minutes on that yeah um you know it's been quite a tough position i mean if we start off with germany G germany's model was all about uh you know utilizing uh, the cheapest source of energy from russia um and it being able to run its industry and export all of its goods out into the world that model has completely broken they now faced with extremely high energy prices it's now looking to offshore a lot of its uh, industry to other areas it, it's even looking at china where it can uh, you know uh, plant its industries there in order for because energy is a lot cheaper in china and they're able to actually run their factories at a at a lot more efficient manner as compared to running it you know back home um so i think germany has been hit the strongest in fact if you compare germany versus the eurozone germany has already entered a recession uh we're now seeing uh you know clearly that being reflected in the retail numbers which have declined in fact if you look at the uh you know the the, the most recent the, uh, retail print that's down 5% on real terms on year on year basis um and and typically we always observe that uh you know the the demand coming in from the retail tends to um uh tends to uh, you know be a, an important indicator of what is to come ahead So I think Germany is one country that is uh, that has been faced uh, with you know quite a tight uh, situation on the energy front. Uh, France has been very interesting. They are looking to nuclear sources, but we've had um, you know zero growth from that front because it it obviously isn't as easy to switch on a nuclear reactor. So I think we are facing hurdles there. Here in UK, we're faced with the you know a, a much harsher winter. Um, other renewable sources of energy, such as wind, have pretty much died out. uh so it is a very difficult situation especially in uk we are living you know dealing with the cost of living crisis and uh we're seeing uh you know households having to make a decision between you know actually heating up their homes versus having a meal so it is quite drastic um you know and we i mean where investors are more and more looking towards governments to bring about that relief package i think um Uh, one very interesting sigh of relief we did get yesterday was when the german uh, constitutional court actually rejected the plea for germany to not participate in the uh, eu uh, um, recovery funds that was the, those were the funds that were launched just after the covid pandemic now germany has full participation in this so it's worth about 750 billion euros um it's split up into grants and loans of about 360 billion euros and 390 billion euros in loans and i think that relief package is going to provide a lot of support over the next 4 years for uh, the eurozone economy i think there's a number of topics to be raised here on the energy the efforts to go away from carbon um and what put, what position that put in europe in so we talk about some of those issues but i also want to talk more about the outlook on some of these broader commodity markets and how that fits into portfolios. I've got Nitesh Shah, Anika Gupta. We're here live from London talking about what's going on in the global markets here. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. We were just talking about the energy transition on the first half of the at the show. Um, ESG is a big topic. It's become a big controversial topic globally. um and and some people think you know the ESG focus has got Europe into this problem in the first place uh and there's sort of questions why they didn't prioritize nuclear they did all this wind oriented issues but there's been a lot of interest in investing in the energy transition um i don't know if one of you wants to take lead on talk about what are the different commodities that are implicated is that what what is the story here Yeah, maybe I start off when in saying the energy transition is a, a long transition program, uh, and unfortunately, policymakers haven't quite recognised that. And in the sense that they thought transition could be done quickly, um, and therefore have cut back on the support for traditional energy sources too quickly. and that has led to shortages in a lot of the traditional energy sources with uh, a substantial um deficit in the amount of capital that's going into the so-called energy transition uh, uh components including wind solar uh, hydro 
Um, and you could also put into that bucket uh, nuclear energy, which is very low on carbon, although people would argue that it's high in sort of toxic waste. Um, but what we are experiencing here in Europe is a significant deficit in energy and that's been exacerbated by the the russian ukraine war it's been laid to bear as anika mentioned you know countries like uh, germany which had been highly dependent on the hydrocarbons coming from uh from from russia uh, have been caught uh, off guard um without that supply uh, and then, you know to note germany is a landlocked country um it needs pipeline supply for things natural gas um and if it can't get that, you know, shipments of liquefied natural gas from, say, the US or Qatar or elsewhere take a lot longer to get to Germany. So it's hard to pivot to other sources uh, very quickly. Um, and if you haven't invested in the energy transition uh, resources, the wind, solar, etc., um, that can't be done overnight. Uh, capital expenditure takes a while to filter through to end production. Uh, so what we're facing right now is a deficit in, 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 in energy. Uh, but if you are a commodity investor and you recognize which commodities benefit from the tra energy transition, um, then, you, then you're in a good place because you know that the demand for all those components is going to rise, whereas the supply could be quite tight. Um, what are these commodities? What are the ones that are people put in these baskets of, of energy? Transitions metals. So metals are the key. Metals are the new energy, essentially. Um, so copper is absolutely essential. Um, it's used for electrifying our energy uh, sources. So as you move away from combusting a uh, an energy source at a point of use, like putting fuel into your car and burning that to uh, drive your car to a to electric car system you need um, more transmission and distribution of electricity which is produced from uh, various sources so um, we, either there's a huge demand for copper for um, upgrading transmission and uh, distribution cabling, but also cars themselves, an electric vehicle uses four times as much copper as an internal combustion engine vehicle. So that raises the demand profile for, for copper. Uh, nickel is another commodity that's used in uh, the energy transition. Once again, the cars are a big driver there. Uh, batteries uh, that are used in cars are uh, increasingly more nickel intensive. Um, and you know, nickel doesn't even exist in a traditional car. Um, so there's a huge increase in demand for, for nickel. Uh, aluminium, once again, used in the, in the distribution and transmission uh, mechanisms. Um, and also zinc. Uh, but then you've also got other metals which have been in long-term decline, like uh, platinum, for example. Uh, platinum used to be used in uh, the catalyst for diesel engines. Uh, that had been sl slowly decaying because consumer preferences were moving towards gasoline engines, which use palladium. But platinum is uh, an essential metal for hydrogen production and for hydrogen fuel cells. Now, as you move to an economy where hydrogen is going to be more in demand, and you know, batteries are good for you know passenger cars, but they're also great for trucks or airplanes or ships. Things that you use a lot of energy are likely to use hydrogen more going forward. And uh, platinum is an essential metal for producing the hydrogen in the first place, but also in the engine that uses the. Uh, hydrogen, uh, the PEM membrane uh, engines uh, are going to be a huge boost for the for, 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 for platinum. So there's a whole range of metals that are in demand right now. But the invest, investment in the capex um, has been falling far short of expectations. And therefore, we're, we're going into a very tight market right now. When, when you, we, one of the topics we were talking about this, this week is, is how much people invest in broad commodity strategies versus gold. Uh, and we'll get back to the test on how to think about gold and some of these models. Uh, what are you seeing from an asset allocation and, and, and macro perspective? Why do you think people have gravitated toward gold versus these broader baskets? Or, and, and how much have you thought about suggestions for people to, to think about commodities in a portfolio? That's a really interesting question. Um, what we've observed, uh, over history is uh, if you look at the inflows that come into broad commodities, they tend to be an important 
uh, signal of a change in sentiment. So whenever you see those in, you know strong inflows coming into the broad commodity baskets, that that's that turning point. That's when you start to see. Uh, that's that um, you know harbinger of more flows coming into the rest of the commodity spectrum, uh, because investors try to play it a bit more safer by taking you know allocation to the broad commodities as opposed to individual subsectors. Um, I think what is very interesting and why broad commodities uh, you know needs uh, and and really should be an allocation within an investor's portfolio, especially in this current environment, is because we've seen uh, you know a very unique. Uh, uh, you know, high inflationary environment followed by, you know, extraordinary monetary tightening uh, that has taken place over the course of 2022 in monetary policy. And as a consequence of that, uh, you know, we've observed that uh, commodities tend to be one of the, you know, a very strong inflation hedge. But more interestingly, we've seen that whenever we have these unexpected and surprise jumps in inflation, that's when commodities have an exceptionally strong performance and actually are, a, are an even better hedge. So we know the typical um, you know, assets that you should go into when inflation is rising. But it, interestingly, investors should question, what is the asset that you should take allocation to it, you know, in case of that um, event happening where it, inflation does surprise on the upside? Um, and I think an allocation to gold is very interesting because when we you know, when we do get these events of high geopolitical risk, um, uh, you know, uh, um, you have a weaker dollar. That's when you start to see those flows actually coming into uh, gold because gold is often viewed as a monetary asset. And hence, um, you know, we've seen that recently play out as the U.S. 10 years U.S. Treasury yield started to ease, uh, dollar it began to peak. We've seen those flows uh, follow and sue into gold. We're talking with Anika Gupta, Nitesh Shah, Wisdom Tree Europe, my two colleagues here in London. We're broadcasting live from London. Uh, this is, you know, an interesting question on the portfolio allocation. I think commodities have disappointed for so long. Uh, I think it's more present in Europe than in the U.S. I think as part of strategic allocations, uh, some of our asset allocation team has talked about as much as five to ten percent being worthwhile to be in broad commodity strategies and and you know it was definitely a unique thing that went up this year you know not a lot of things went up this year you had stocks down bonds down and inflation was the key risk for both so commodities are definitely showing their worth in portfolio allocation this year i think still i would argue some of the key risk going forward uh is sort of these surprise you know if, if things were to keep escalating, that would be at risk to inflation. Um, but Natasha, let's come back to you. Um, you do a lot of quant work and modeling on gold in particular, and gold is actually still orders of magnitude, I want to say like four or five times bigger than broad commodities, even though we think people should be diversified. People seem to love their gold. Um, you've done some modeling. I, I'm going to give a shout to my friend JC Peretz of All Star Charts. JC has been a behind the markets guest. He has a daily newsletter uh, I sent around to our team. What's been the biggest beneficiary of the declining dollar? It's been silver. Uh, silver has been off the charts. You know, a lot of people think go to emerging markets or other places when you go to down dollar. Silver has been rocketing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your models for gold and silver, what they say, what you should be looking at today. What, what's, how do you model gold and silver? Excellent question. And I want to start off with the, with a, with a, with a, with a thing that may surprise most people. Year to date, gold has actually outperformed oil. Year to date, right? Not after the start of the year. <laughs> now it has. Yeah. Um, start, start so that's when you look at spot. But um, when you look at the total return, when you incorporate the futures uh, roles, and then as we do discussed earlier on, the backwardation structure in oil actually added that extra kicker on performance. So oil as a total return has done better for spot. The gold is not too bad, actually. It's actually outperformed uh, oil. Now, if we think about gold, what, what drives gold? Well, firstly, we should acknowledge that gold is probably not m like most commodities. It's almost like an FX asset rather than a regular commodity. In fact, most of the drivers of its price aren't to do with supply, demand, balance, dynamics. Um, my modeling work and I, what I've done is taken you know, as many variables as I can get time series data on, uh, to put into, uh, into a multivariate kind of econometric model to distinguish what is the most important things that can drive gold prices. 
And I've taken a broad range of things, everything from central bank flows, uh, investor demand, uh, but it's overwhelmingly the macro factors that drive gold prices. And they include um, the dollar exchange rate. As dollar appreciates, that tends to be bad for gold. Uh, treasury yields, uh, so as treasury yields rise, that tends to be bad for gold. You've had both of those. Yeah, it's been disastrous for gold for those two reasons for this year. Um, and, you know, and, and gold and bonds are competing anti-fragile defensive type of assets. So the price of one falls, the price of the other should fall. Um, but very interestingly, the price of bonds have absolutely collapsed, right? We've had absolute capitulation in the bond market this year. But gold prices haven't done that. Gold prices have held relatively steady because of the third major factor that drives gold prices, and that's inflation. Inflation, as we've all lived through, and I'm not sure, and unless you're a hermit, you, you, would, you would know that inflation has gone through the roof this year, regardless of whether you live in the US or Europe, UK, uh, only if you live in China or some, you know, some Asia, and Japan, you may feel you know, uh, inflation being somewhat moderate, but inflation hitting double digits in many parts of Europe, uh, and, and you know, we are getting close to that in, in, in the US, has been a strong supporting force for gold prices. The fourth major thing that drives gold is sentiment. And we measure sentiment through positioning in the futures markets. And that's had a bit of a roller coaster this year. And at times it was really high. At the outbreak of the Ukraine-Russia war, it was extremely high. It came very low towards September, but now it's rebuilding once again. So massive headwinds from dollar and, and bond yields, but support from uh, inflation. They've almost kind of netted each other off. The levers close to flat for, for gold this year is down one and a half percent year to date, roughly. The headwinds pretty good for when the S and P's down double digits, bonds down uh, not bad. Yeah. Well, so you, you do this modeling work. What's your? Do you have a forecast for gold? How do you think about it? You do a lot of this forecasting work. Yes, we do the forecasting. So the way your model works is it doesn't naturally come up with a forecast in of itself. We have to input a macro view. So let me give you a little background on, on our macro view. Uh, we think inflation will remain quite stubbornly high, right? We, although it'll come down from eight plus percent region where we're in right now, um, we believe that by third quarter of uh, 2023, it'll still be hovering around the 5% region for the US. So still pretty stubbornly high. Not quite target level, lower than we are today, but that's still quite high. We believe treasury yields will continue to uh, come down as we've got the Fed pivot in place. Uh, that should help short-term yields on, 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 the, uh, on, on the curve come down. Uh, so, you know, around 3.5% uh, for... Uh, Not far from where you are today. Not far from where you are today, but a little bit lower. Today. Yeah, yeah. Basically where are today. Yeah. Uh, and then we, we're potentially getting a little bit of bond, uh, sorry, dollar uh, depreciation. So, um, you know, it could, it, could, it could come down from today. What I've inputted in my last uh, forecast was actually hovering around the 104 level for the dollar basket. But that could come a little bit down today. Um, and then sentiment on the uh on, on gold measured through spec positioning um we were very low uh, a few weeks ago uh, around you know 50,000 contracts net long uh, i've gone in my forecast for 100,000 contracts net long in the last couple of weeks we've actually moved to that level if we hold steady around then 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 the gold prices could go to around 1910 uh, around the third quarter of uh, 2023. Uh, now, two things, the dollar could depreciate even more, and spec position could rise even more if recession risks, risks pick up. So I think the risks are tipped to the upside. So going from where we are around 1800, we're just hovering around 1800 today to around 1910. Uh, so there's still substantial upside. Well, I'm sure you can do a lot of modeling. Siegel obviously thinks inflation is going to yeah. be lower. You do all sorts of scenario analysis on all that. I'm sure people can work with you if they have their own scenarios they want to run. Yeah. Uh, two seconds on silver. I mean, so JC was saying silver is flying. What's the story between gold and silver? What's the nuances? What do you think about silver today? So silver often acts as a leveraged play in gold. So if gold prices are rising, we should expect silver prices to rise a little bit more. But if gold prices are rising because people are feeling recession, 
then that could take the edge off silver a little bit because silver is a lot more of an industrial metal. So is the pop in silver, is it's doing well, no recession? Is that what we're saying? It's holding its own, and that's fantastic. But we should also note that silver is one of these energy transition metals. The source of its demand is actually increasing. More solar panels, more electrification could change the behavior of silver going forward. And you know, if that happens to be the case, then silver's got a potentially strong upside. Anna, we've talked a lot about the world. Um, what, what are some things that you're focused on as, as you look ahead, sort of summarizing big picture views? What, what are you focused on for the new year? Yeah, I think, uh, Jeremy, it's going to be a tale of two halves for next year. It's going to be, you know, I thought the macro environment was quite challenging in 2022. It's going to just get even more interesting in 2023. Um, you know, we expect uh, the Fed to begin to pause its uh, rate tightening cycle by Q1 of 2023. We've already started to see the dollar weaken. Um, and I think that has big implications uh, for a number of, uh, you know, more risk-oriented risk assets such as, such as emerging markets. Um, I think they've been in the doldrums for far too long. But if you, if you actually look at their strength in, um, you know, over the course of 22, they've been able to withstand one of the harshest rate tightening cycles in, uh, you know, in U.S. history. Um, and if you look at current account balances, their fundamentals have been pretty strong. If you compare them to, so if you compare emerging markets versus developed markets, they've actually been in a much better position and, are, uh, you know, above uh, more than a percent above where we're seeing developed markets, which have actually gone into negative territory. And I think the big turning point and the big catalyst for EM will be how much of this rebound uh, within the Chinese economy will actually play out. And again, it remains very contingent on now uh, their flexible zero COVID policy. Uh, so I think the winter is going to be quite difficult to navigate. But as we come out uh, by Q1, I think the dust is going to start to settle. I think emerging markets should start to uh, rebound. And I think, um, uh, yeah. No, this has uh, been a fantastic discussion. I heard an interesting view that somebody was underweight risk but overweight em and overweight japan one of the major firms blackrock this week uh told me that that was very interesting it's been great to be with you nitesh shah anika gupta here in london i'm jeremy schwartz you've been listening to behind the markets and sirius 132 have a great week everybody thanks for listening to the behind the markets podcast if you want to learn more about wisdom tree visit wisdomtree.com you can also follow me on twitter at jeremy d schwartz I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.